The legal views and content expressed on the following program are provided solely for informational and entertainment purposes. They do not constitute or contain legal advice. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the show. You are listening to the Break the Business Podcast. I'm Ryan Carella, and it is a pleasure to have you here this week. Man, I'm in a good mood. It, I'm just, I'm feeling so terrific because the last, we'll call it 18 to 24 hours of my life have been filled with some awesome sports that I've gotten to watch. I'm a big sports guy. I love watching uh, athletic conquests whenever I can come across them. And I just got back from a fantastic Marlins game. I'm a Marlins fan. I'm a Miami guy. I just watched my beloved Marlins sweep the San Diego Padres, winning their third straight game. They're only four and a half back in the wild card now. And in route to winning the game, John Carlos Stanton, my favorite player, hit his 50th home run of the year. It is a Marlins record. No Marlin has ever hit 50 home runs. He could be going after Roger Maris's home run mark of 61. That's He's just so much fun to watch. You feel like anytime he's at the plate, he can put one deep into the seats. And you know, as a Marlins fan, we don't get to see our team playing meaningful baseball in August and September that often, but we're right in the thick of the playoff race and I'm so excited. So that was fun. I just got back from that. And last night I watched the big boxing match. I watched Floyd Mayweather fight Conor McGregor. And that was really fun. Floyd Mayweather won the big fight. That's right. Shockingly, a boxer beat a non-boxer in a boxing match. I know we're all quite surprised about that, but it was still fun to watch. And look, I know there's people out there, boxing purists, the the true believers in the sweet science who just are so against everything that that fight represented that it was it was wrong, it besmirched the good name of boxing, and that could very well be. I'm not a big boxing fan, so I can't say that I'm a keeper of the truth of boxing, but damn it, it was fun to watch. Oh my goodness. And let me say this. In Conor McGregor's defense, because he did, he did not win and nobody thought he was going to win. But let me say this about the guy. Conor McGregor can take a punch. My God, can he take a punch? And it was a TKO, but it wasn't a knockout. He never actually hit the floor. And I'm convinced that Floyd Mayweather could have punched that guy all night. He could still be punching him now. And I don't think Conor McGregor would ever hit the floor. Dude stayed on his feet. I mean, he was knocked out on his feet, but he stayed on his feet. It, it reminded me of that Simpsons episode uh, from, God, it must have been like 15 or 20 years ago. But there was an episode of The Simpsons where Homer discovered that he had this like extra layer of fluid around his brain that prevented him from ever being knocked out. And Mo, the bartender, decides, oh, I, I'm going to make a boxing career out of this guy. But of course, Homer doesn't actually know how to box, but he can't be knocked down, so... He adopts this strategy as a boxer where he just lets the other guy beat the crap out of him until he gets tired. And then when the other boxer's tired, Homer just pushes him over and he wins a bunch of fights and he gets a a title shot against the Mike Tyson equivalent on The Simpsons, this guy named Dredrick Tatum. And the Floyd Mayweather-Conor McGregor fight was a lot like the Homer Simpson-Dredrick Tatum fight on The Simpsons. Floyd Mayweather was just laying some ridiculous punches on Conor McGregor, and he was, you know, he, he'd won like the last six rounds in a row in that fight before he eventually got the TKO against McGregor in the 10th, 
but McGregor never went down. And I don't think he could have ever knocked McGregor down. That dude can take a punch. And it wasn't real boxing. It was a circus act. It was a sideshow, but damn it, it was fun. And so I'm in a good mood. And I'm excited to be here to talk to you because we got a great, a lot of great music industry stuff to talk about. Let me, let me talk about what we're going to do today. But first, uh, some quick housekeeping. You can rate, review, and subscribe to the Break the Business podcast. Uh, rate us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher. You can throw some great reviews and subscriptions on there. I really appreciate the subscriptions. It's what keeps the podcast moving. And the episodes go up every Sunday. And maybe you don't know exactly when they're going to go up on Sunday. I don't know when they're going to go up on Sunday. This one's actually going to go up a little later on Sunday than usual because I was over at the Marlins game watching John Carlos Stanton hit home runs to the moon, baby. And so the best way to know, the best way to get the episode as soon as it comes out is to subscribe. iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, make it happen, people. I have been so grateful to all the support this podcast has gotten from you, the artist, or those who love artists, or anybody who listens to this show. So appreciative. And another way that I can show my appreciation to you, and you can show your appreciation to this podcast, is by keeping in touch with us. There are many a way that you can reach out. You can follow me on Twitter, at Ryan K-A-I-R. Throw us a likety-like on Facebook, facebook.com slash business. And send us an email, uh, breakthebusiness at gmail.com. And when you email us, you can ask us questions that you want us to answer about the show, pop culture related, but more likely music industry and your music career related. I want to build whole segments on this show answering your questions because this show is a public service. We're here to help musicians. We're here to help creators. And the best way I can do that is if you send this show questions about your own career that you'd like answers on, breakthebusiness at gmail.com. And we can answer them for you. Again, break the business at gmail.com, the best way to get in touch with us. And visit our website, www.breakthebusiness.com. You can get all of our episodes there. Our guest this week, I'm so excited, Tanya Butler, Professor Tanya Butler. She is the assistant chair of the music business management program at the Berkeley College of Music. I've been told that's a pretty good college of music. She is also the author of, and I love the title of this book, The Music Business is Corrupt. Or maybe you just can't sing. How to take responsibility for your struggling career. She is a delight. I heard her give a presentation at the NAM conference back in January. And ever since then, I've wanted her to be on the show. We've been trying to get the schedules to align. And finally, here in late August, I've finally gotten her on this show. She is going to be great. Uh, you're really going to love listening to her. She's engaging. She's interesting. And, 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 wrap your head around this, people. She was a contestant on Let's Make a Deal. And you better believe I'm going to ask her some questions about that. Because not only was she contestant on Let's Make a Deal, but she won. She was offered like a smaller prize, or she could have what was behind door number two, and you better believe she took what was behind door number two, and she won a ton of prizes, and I want to talk to her about that. So we're going to get some great advice from her. She's an expert on branding and music education, so she's going to be valuable for you to listen to as an indie artist, but you best damn believe we're going to ask her some questions about Let's Make a Deal. You have no idea how excited I am to talk to her about that stuff. I'm a huge fan of game shows and anybody who's been on a game show, so we're going to talk to her about that and get some music advice from her. I'm excited. That's coming up in the next segment, but first, we've got some entertainment law news to talk about this week. Why did you touch me? You killed innocent people. The means to an end. You started a massacre. I caused the revolution. You betrayed the law. 
We got some law, Mr. Asante. Thank you. About eight months ago, we first reported on an ongoing lawsuit between a rock band by the name of Avenged Sevenfold, boy did I love them back in junior high, and their record label Warner Brothers. And I want to talk about it again this week because this case is continuing. It's still going on. And most recently, Eric Gardner of The Hollywood Reporter, who gets all the best scoops in the entertainment business and the music business, wrote a fantastic article this week updating that case and talked all about how Avenged Sevenfold is trying to use this case to get out of their record deal. And they just might be able to do it. And if they do, it could significantly impact musicians throughout the industry. It would have ripple effects throughout all the kinds of artists, whether they're label artists or not label artists. So if you are an artist, if you're signed to a record deal, or if you're not signed to a record deal, you need to follow this case closely. Without a doubt, the Avenged Sevenfold case could be the most important court case in in the modern history of the music industry depending on how this case shapes out. And we'll talk about why that is. And so it's worth it for you to follow. And let me give you a summary of what's happened so far in this case so that I can get everybody up to speed. Let's go back to 2003. In 2003, Avenged Sevenfold signs a five-album deal with Warner Brothers. And if you don't know, when you sign most record deals, the way they're structured is it's not a time component. It's not... It's not a three-year contract or a nine-year contract like sports contracts are. They're based on albums. So basically, and when I say that something's a five-album deal, what it means is the artist makes one album at a time for the label, and then if the label wants to continue the deal after each album, they can exercise an option to continue the deal for one more album. It's called picking up your option. And and the label can keep picking up options until the end of the five-album deal And then the contract is over. This structure sucks for artists. It straight up sucks because the record label has an inordinate amount of control over the timing in which your album is made and released as a recording artist, which means a five album deal, if the label wants it to, can stretch out for years and years and years and own an artist's entire life where an artist can be stuck for a long time making albums only for a label and for nobody else because these record deals are always exclusive, which means if you as an artist are trapped in a bad record deal, well, you're just about screwed. And there's no way out. And if, if, uh, if you think I might be biased about this stuff, you should check out my book because it's all about why these record deals are a big mess. And this album structure where it's, you know, an, a set number of albums, the label controls when the albums come out, they control when they want to pick up your album option. And so you can be struck in a, stuck in a record deal for a long time is one of the main reasons why the record industry can be a mess for artists and why record labels can be so bad for artists. But anyway... Avenged Sevenfold has a five-album deal with Warner Brothers. They signed it in 2003. In November 2015, Avenged Sevenfold delivers notice to Warner Brothers, says, Dear Warner Brothers, we are terminating this deal, even though we have one album remaining on the deal. So they've gotten through four of the five albums, and with one album left on the deal, Avenged Sevenfold says, We're done. We are not going to make any more records for you. How can Avenged Sevenfold do this? Well... They rely on Section 2855 of the Labor Code of California, 
This is a California contract, as most record deals are, since all those labels are based in L.A. And this law says, uh, it doesn't just apply, this law, this 2855 labor code, it doesn't just apply to record deals, it applies to all contracts. In the state of California, a personal services contract, a contract to provide services for another, which would include record deals, are limited to seven years. You are not allowed to have a contract for personal services in California that lasts more than seven years. And so this five-album deal of Avenged Sevenfold had stretched on past seven years. And so Avenged Sevenfold said, we're done. Section 2855 of the Labor Code, we are exercising our rights to terminate this deal. The California legislature put this law in to prevent those kind of abuses that we can see um, in many kind of services contract, including record deals. However... Avenged Sevenfold didn't just get to walk away. They didn't just get to go, oh, Section 2855 says we can leave. We're gone, Warner Brothers. See ya. Instead, Warner Brothers sues the band after they get this notice stating that, yes, the California Labor Code does say that personal services contracts can't last more than seven years, and this contract has lasted more than seven years. But that law also says it has a little exception. It has a little yes, but in there. And that exception is... That if you are in a record deal specifically, there's a specific exception for record deals that says that if a recording artist wants to terminate a record deal under the seven-year rule, the artist is liable for damages for the value of any undelivered albums. And as we said before, this event sevenfold deal has one album left. So Warner Brothers is saying if you want to terminate, fine. But you have one album left, and we are being damaged by you not recording that last album, and so you're going to owe us damage. We'll see you in court, Avenged Sevenfold. And so now we're in court. And the question in a case like this, and this is not one that we have the answer to yet, is if a... And and the answer to this question matters for all artists, including all the artists today who are under similarly bad record deals. The question is, if a band uses the seven-year rule and is liable for damages for the um, value of undelivered albums, what would those damages be? How do you calculate those damages? And the answer to that question is nobody really knows. There's nothing in the statute that gives us much instruction as to how to calculate those damages. And so really, a jury gets to decide. And here's the thing. <laughs> There's never been an example of a seven-year rule case involving a record label and an artist in California that has ever made it to a jury. There have been, there have been cases involving famous bands who have managed to negotiate out of their record deals by threatening to use the seven-year rule or perhaps beginning a lawsuit, but all of those eventually settle. And we've never gotten to a jury verdict. And those cases always settle because both sides are afraid what might happen if a jury decides what it means that an artist is liable for the damages from an undelivered album or, or multiple undelivered albums. And so all those cases have settled up until this Avenged Sevenfold case, which looks like it's not going to settle. There is a trial date in December, and there is no end in sight. This might be the first example of a case of a jury deciding what is the value of undelivered album damages under the seven-year rule. 
And honestly, folks, I'm not trying to be cute with you when I say that I don't know what the value of damages would be for an undelivered album under a record deal with under the seven-year rule. Nobody knows. When, when you say damages for the value of an undelivered album, is it the value that the label has spent to make the album? Because in most cases, that number is going to be zero because the label hasn't actually had to do anything for that album yet because that album doesn't exist yet. Or is it the value of the lost profits that a label could have gained if that album got released by the label? And if that's the case, how would you even calculate that? It's speculative. And one of the things that Avenged Sevenfold is arguing in this case, and they're probably right, is Warner Brothers has done such a bad job of promoting their Avenged Sevenfold records over the years that none of their last few albums have been commercial successes. And thus, if Warner Brothers released this fifth album, it wouldn't make any money. And thus, there are no damages to Warner Brothers in lost profits for the value of an undelivered album. And that's, of course, assuming that that's the way to calculate the damages. I don't know. Frankly, I don't know if the Avenged Sevenfold deal is a 360 deal, but a lot of record deals are. And so if a record deal is a 360 deal and the label basically is entitled to a piece of all the artists' income, not just their record income, but their touring income and their merchandising income and all those other forms of income, are those 360 payments considered part of the value of an undelivered album? Again, I don't know. Nobody knows. The statute is really vague. And ultimately, a jury is going to come back to us and decide what it is. And, and depending on what the jury does in this case, as I said before, it's going to have ripple effects throughout the industry and affect every artist, including you. Because if a jury comes back with a lot of damages, hypothetically, let's say in this case, it make, you know this Avenged Sevenfold case makes it to a jury, and the jury says that Avenged Sevenfold is liable to Warner Brothers for a ton of damages then artists forevermore are going to be afraid to use the seven-year rule because now there's bad jury precedent. But now let's say a jury comes back and says, you know what? We don't think there are any damages here, Warner Brothers. We don't think you missed out on that, many, that much profits because you haven't made a lot of money off the Avenged Sevenfold records before then. Labels in general haven't been great at promoting rock records throughout the industry, as uh, Avenged Sevenfold's expert witness says in this case. And... Maybe we think that the only value that you're entitled to is just what you would have spent to make the album. And since you didn't have to make the album, there are no damages. There are lots of ways the jury can go here. And if so if the jury says no damages, Warner Brothers, well, then the whole industry is going to change. Because now musicians who are stuck in bad California record deals, which would represent most record deals out there, are going to be emboldened. A floodgates are going to open. You're going to see a ton of artists terminating their deals because now they've been given a signal by the justice system that the 2855 labor code right, the seven-year rule, is a legitimate means to get out of bad record deals. Labels would lose a lot of power. This could be huge for the industry. I can't overstate its importance. And that's why we all need to follow this Avenged Sevenfold case carefully, especially as we get toward the end of this year and the beginning of next year when you're going to see a lot of actual legit trial action on this case. And we just need to follow this because there's lots of crazy questions. A lot can happen. A jury verdict in this case would have significant effects on the industry, kind of in the same way that in that Blurred Reliance copyright case, the jury verdict in that case has had a significant effect on the music industry. Artists now are a lot more likely to settle copyright disputes with third parties because they don't want to be the next Robin Thicke and pay giant damages because juries can 
<laughs> are giving out big verdicts in copyright cases. So we could see a similar kind of effect on record deals in the seven-year rule, depending on how the jury comes back in this event sevenfold case, assuming that it does go to a jury, which it may very well might. So, oh my goodness, follow this case, people. This is huge. And of course, we're going to follow it here on the podcast. So if you keep listening to us from week to week, you best believe we're going to keep you updated on how this case goes down because its effect on the music industry cannot be overstated. Professor Tanya Butler coming up next on the Break the Business podcast. Ryan here from the podcast. Shameless plug time. My new book, Break the Business, Declaring Your Independence and Achieving True Success in the Music Industry is now available in paperback and an ebook. The book talks about how you can be your own boss in your music career and take control of your content creation, promotion, distribution, and fundraising. Get your copy on Amazon by searching Break the Business. It's a nice read for musicians and the people who love them. That's Break the Business, declaring your independence and achieving true success in the music industry. Thanks very much for your support. Welcome back to the Break the Business podcast. She is an attorney, former music executive, and the assistant chair of the Music Business Management Program at the Berklee College of Music. She is also the author of The Music Business is Corrupt, or Maybe You Just Can't Sing, How to Take Responsibility for Your Struggling Career, which is now available on Amazon. Ladies and gentlemen, Tanya Butler is on the Break the Business podcast. Professor, thank you so much for joining us. It is my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. All right, uh, Professor, let me be real with you here for a second. I, I was prepared with all of these questions that I was going to ask you about your distinguished career. I want to get so much advice on, from you because you know so much. I, I heard you speak at NAM. You had some great stuff on branding. And I want to talk to you about all that, but yeah. I don't want to do any of that first. Not right this second because we did some research on you before we, uh, you know, we in anticipation of this interview and found uh -oh. out that apparently... You were a contestant on Let's Make a Deal, and I want to talk to you about that. <laughs> oh, okay. I wasn't sure what it was you found. That, well, that, that I mean, this is pretty good, though. Um, just to, yeah. to, you know, you, you, Last you, year, yeah. I was in Los Angeles on vacation. My sister had tickets. We went on the show not expecting to be chosen. I'm wearing an afro and a black jumpsuit, as you can only imagine. <laughs> Wayne Brady sees me in the audience, says, Afro lady, come on up. I will give you $500 or you can have behind what's behind curtain number two. Well, after much rumination with the audience and my sister, I chose curtain number two. Yeah, and you won did. An entire suite of living room furniture. Woo. Yes. Oh, uh, <laughs> from what I know about you, from what I have, you know, from what I remember of your talk, you are a, you are a bold person. You take chances. I mean, I can't imagine even for a second that you thought about just taking the $500 and walking away. No, oh, of course not. Of course not. <laughs> That's what and I'm talking you know about. what? You have, there is no reward without risk. Well, I feel like there's a lesson to be learned for artists and musicians from this about the value of, of taking risks and, you know, understanding that, you know, you often have to make sacrifices to earn the bigger rewards in this business. And not only that, but you don't have to take the first thing that's offered to you just because it looks good or, oh. or it's pretty or it's shiny. Either. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Um, is Wayne Brady as handsome, like up close as he is on TV? Because that guy seems like he's all kind of handsome. 
He is. He's handsome. He's he's kind. He's a really, really sweet guy. Very genuine, too. I, I fell in love with Wayne Brady that day. Beautiful. Actually, I fell in love with him on the Chappelle show a while back, a while back. <laughs> but this time, uh, I, I, it's genuine. <laughs> right on. OK, OK, OK. Uh, we thank you for putting up with our nonsense um, to to business here. You have yeah. a fantastic background in music both on the business side the legal side and it is all culminated in your current gig as the assistant chair for the music business management department at berkeley by the way you're the first woman to ever hold that position so huzzah to you thank Uh, you sir can you walk the listeners through some of your career highlights what brought you to where you are now wow what brought me to where i am today is has been a lot of uh hard work and a lot of perseverance. I started off, believe it or not, as a theater major. And okay. I had a student not too long ago ask me how my theater degree was applicable to what I do in the music business. And I had to be honest and say, you know, you really need to sometimes um, pretend you're somebody else when you're in this industry. <laughs> Because if they knew what you really thought, you know, you wouldn't get any work. So um, (laughs) I'm always using my theater degree. Uh, Soon after um, realizing that I was a starving actress and didn't want to starve anymore, I decided to go to law school. But in law school, my only goal was to be an entertainment attorney. I didn't want to practice any other type of law. And that's difficult when you're in law school and you're learning, you know, uh, 13, 14 different types of law all at the same time. It's it's hard to say that you only want to concentrate on one, but I did and um, was able to launch a career in law soon after that and have loved almost every minute of it. Wow. How many lawyers Uh, can say that, by the way? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I was going to explain what the almost meant because um, I unfortunately got into the industry in the late 90s, right when the industry was on a downturn, especially in the early 2000s. Mm. So I got laid off a lot. I lost a lot of jobs. Companies were folding. They were merging. Uh, My last gig at MGM Music, as a matter of fact, was a merger with Sony. And I just got tired of not having any job security. Although I knew that there was no real job security in the music and entertainment business, um, I was hoping to at least be able to save up for retirement and that wasn't happening. So I started teaching and fell in love with the classroom and the students and the ability to give advice away, you know, literally for free. Oh man. And, uh, it's, uh, and I, I can tell you the, uh, the education field is lucky to have somebody like you. Um, Thank you. You know, you you've you provide. And, and speaking of just all the advice you've dispensed out there, there's, you know, it's hard to, you know, you, you can't swing your arms without hitting something you've written uh, that's you know been important in the industry. Most of which being your book, which has one of the best <laughs> titles I've heard: "The Music <laughs> Business Is Corrupt." Or maybe you just can't sing how to take responsibility for your struggling career. And one of the overarching themes of that book uh, seems to be that it's, you know, it's getting musicians to take responsibility for their own success, not to make excuses or blame others. Um, And certainly for somebody who's gone through as many tough things as you have, you're not about making excuses. Uh, What are some of the most common excuses you've heard musicians give about why they're not more successful? And how do you respond to those excuses? Oh, boy, let me tell you. Let's go. That is the reason I wrote the book, because I would hear people say, oh, it's my lawyer's fault. 
they didn't review the contract in the right way or they didn't they didn't negotiate on my behalf. Maybe it's my manager's fault. You know, my manager could have gotten me that gig and they didn't. Uh, it's my label. My label is, is uh, hates me and, and they're not putting me or making me a priority. Um, those were the biggest excuses. They were blaming people in the industry. Some people would even go as far as to blame the the economy. Uh, they would uh, blame President Obama. Uh, they they blamed, um, you know, maybe it wasn't the will of God. Um, perhaps it was their fans and their fans just don't understand. And I really got tired of hearing excuse after excuse after excuse. So finally, I actually had a conversation with a musician. And when I found myself saying, did you ever think that it might be you, that maybe you are the problem, that maybe there's something that you're not doing, maybe you're not presenting yourself very well, uh, maybe you're not as educated as you should be, you know, for, for someone who wants to call this their career, um, maybe you had a bad reputation based on some things you've done in the past that you haven't corrected, uh, maybe you're an asshole and have just a really bad personality and people just don't want to work with you. And finally, m maybe you just can't sing. Maybe you just don't have the talent you think you do. <laughs> oh, and uh, I mean, actually, I think that last point is kind of interesting. What, what you, do I have you speechless? You, you do. Well, well, that last one in particular, I think is interesting because before you, taught at Berkeley, you've been teaching, you know, you taught at uh, Minnesota State, and, you know, so you have a long teaching career, and you, so you've probably had lots of students who take music business as a major, which means they have an interest in the entertainment industry and being yeah. a significant entertainer in that industry. How many students have you come across that have gone through this program that have paid, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in tuition, and they just can't sing? Is this a common occurrence? You know what? Let me tell you something. Not as much in academia. Well, thank goodness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not as much in academia because the students are music majors and they're they're being trained. Um, you know, they are forced to to practice and work on their craft and hone their skills. Unfortunately, people who let's say you know they just taught themselves how to play and they just decided all of a sudden one day that they wanted to launch a career without any real training or professional education those are the people that i found had the biggest problem and also had the most excuses mm. because they weren't they didn't educate themselves even in their own craft which amazed me it amazed me the music industry is the only industry where you can just jump in, not have any education, no training, no nothing. I mean, we, we train our dentists, we train our real estate agents, you know, to, to a certain extent, but our musicians are sometimes just plain old dumb. <laughs> well, let me ask you something in this realm of education here, because yeah. I think, you know, going today, there's so much, there's so many more educational resources out there than there were when you started 20 years ago. Right. And this will be an interesting question to pose to somebody in your position who is the leader of a music business program at a college. How necessary do you think it is for students to get a traditional music business degree to educate themselves if they want to have a future in this industry versus finding that education through other means that perhaps don't cost as much? Oh, uh, that's a very good question. You know what? We are in an extremely competitive industry. 
I believe that whatever can give you an edge in this business, you should take advantage of. Absolutely. You don't have you don't have to go to college. You don't have to major in music business. I majored in theater and I'm in the music business. <laughs> um, but today's industry is so competitive that if I had to choose between someone who maybe just came off the street and has a great interest in management versus someone who took a, an entire course or a program in management, I'm picking the more educated person. Oh, very So cool. it's primarily okay. because of the competitive nature of the business that we're in. I mean, you need to have everything that you can possibly have in your favor in order to gain a competitive advantage. Well, so, and for students who are considering, now, now I feel like I'm coming at you like a director of admissions here. For, for, for those of the listeners who are maybe in high school or about to go to college and they think that a music business management program might be the major for them, what, what sort of preparation should they be doing before they go to college? What courses should they be taking? What makes for an attractive music business candidate for a, a school like Berkeley? You know what? It's so interesting that you mentioned that because I was just talking to a student about that the other day, and I told them, I said, it doesn't matter what classes you're taking. You can take whatever classes you want. You can almost major in whatever you want. But what I'm looking for is that there's something about your life it could be that you collect vinyl. Maybe you worked as a at, at a record store part-time. Maybe you have your own podcast. Maybe you've done your own recordings. And, and nowadays, because equipment is so accessible and even affordable, I mean, especially like if you, all you need is a computer sometimes and a software program like GarageBand, which comes with a Mac, you can make your own music. I'm looking for students who have been doing it already and are looking for an education to enhance their knowledge. I'm always skeptical of someone who says, I want to be in the music business, and they have no experience in the music business. And I know that sounds a little opposite of what I said before, in that I'm looking for someone with an education. But if when, when I was a, a hiring partner, and now that um, I get to help with admissions here at Berkeley, I'm looking for someone who does it all, who has some experience and who has some education. So in many ways, a music business, a traditional music business education is as valuable as the life experience you bring into it. That is correct. And that's because most traditional music business educations require things like hands-on experience, practicum courses, internships, things that help you gain that uh, hands-on experience and allow you to utilize what you've learned in the classroom. Okay. Um, that's excellent, excellent advice. I hope everybody out there is listening. Uh, you know, it's a education in many ways is a supplement folks. You have to, you have to bring life experience into it. And I, I can tell you as when I was in law school, the, the most engaged, the, the, the law students that got the most out of it were ones that have done things in life before they got into the classroom that's that right. actually made class discussion interesting. That's exactly right. I love older students, for example, those who have had a career and recognize that they hit a brick wall because they weren't educated. And don't get me wrong, college is not for everyone, which is one of the reasons why I love Berkeley, for example, because at Berkeley, I mean, you can get a degree or even just a certificate online. 
there are thousands of schools, well, maybe not thousands, but hundreds of schools across the country that offer things like uh, uh, certificates and short-term programs, or heck, just take a class. You know, how can you ever expect to be a music publisher, let's say, if you don't know how publishing works? You can buy all the books in the world and study publishing, but the language sometimes is so nuanced that you really need someone to explain to you how things work. And that, to me, is the value of an education. Yeah, and there's no substitute for just getting your hands dirty. Um, That's right. That's right. You gave a talk earlier this year, Professor, that I enjoyed very much at the NAM conference on the importance of branding and how musicians need to embrace branding in their careers. And my God, do musicians not do this enough. Can you talk about what branding is and what what are some things that musicians can do to improve their brand? You know what? I'm I'm glad you asked that question too because when a moment ago you said it's something that they don't do enough. Mm. I actually think they do it all the time. Is that right? Oh yeah. I think musicians are branding themselves all the time. Just like I tell my students, when you don't come to class, when you don't turn in an assignment, when you're late all the time, when you're talking in the back of the room when the professor is instructing, you are branding yourself. You are burning an image or a perception in my mind of what's important to you. Musicians do it all the time when they don't reach out and build a relationship with their fans, when they um, put together an entire album, let's say, worth of songs without testing the market. <laughs> you know, I mean, just just little things. They are branding themselves, unfortunately, as not the smartest, you know, I don't want to say stupid, but not the smartest of uh, of business people, number one. But they're also branding themselves when they use substandard uh, musicians, let's say, or audio equipment. Um, I had a, a guy hand me a CD. This was back in the day, of course, because nobody uses them today, <laughs> except as merch. But I had a guy hand me a CD with writing on the CD with a Sharpie wrapped in a paper towel. He said he didn't have a jewel case at the time. So he just wrapped it in a paper towel so that it wouldn't get fingerprints all over it. This guy was branding himself. <laughs> okay. Oh that he goodness. had a brand. All right. In my mind as a complete, I'm not going to say idiot, but I will say a completely unprofessional unpolished somebody that I would not trust to walk my dog. Yeah. But the good news is if you spilled your drink at that concert you were at, he, he would have had you all set up. There. Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. 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 <laughs> he so was just looking say, out for you. Musicians are branding themselves all the time. And sometimes the, the brand or the image or the perception that they're creating for themselves is just not a good one. It's just not positive. All right. So now, now let me put your lawyer hat on a little bit with this. So in terms of creating a brand and even protecting it, how does trademark law come into play there? You know what? That's interesting because there's common law, trademark, and then there's federal, uh, there's even state trademark protection in some states. Um, I think for me, the biggest issue that I have with people and trademarks is that it is so easy to determine whether someone else has the same band name, let's say, as you do. You don't have to have a lawyer. You don't have to necessarily even search the PTO, the Patent Trademark Office. All you have to do is Google the damn thing. <laughs> 
if you Google your band name and it comes up as somebody else's band name, you can't use that name. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that it, it, you know, people are always, they just jump the gun, which is also a part of their brand. You know, their brand is not always intelligent. You know, it's not always thoughtful. It's not always forward thinking. Not only that, but um, then they try to, let's say if they, they Google it and they don't find it, they make an attempt to register their own trademark. That is very, very tricky because even professional uh, attorneys and people who register trademarks every single day get their applications kicked back because of some small or minor mistake. So instead of going to, you know, some internet service and, and paying, you know, 19.95 to trademark, you know, I don't, uh, uh, or as a fee, I don't understand why more artists just don't spend the money. Now, I understand not having the money, but there are a few things at work here. First of all, it takes money to make money. And number two, you need to invest in yourself. And when you ask a fan to spend $5, $10, I don't care if it's 99 cents on your download or to subscribe to a service like Spotify so that they can listen to your music, you're asking them to invest in your career. If you're not investing in your own career by saving up the money, by working two jobs, by doing extra gigs, whatever it is, then maybe this is not the business for you. So... It sounds like what I'm hearing is it is of equal importance to not only protect your literal brand by you know expending resources to you know protect your trademarks and get them registered well, but of equal if not more importance is protecting this figurative brand. You know everything that you yeah. do reflects on who you are and right. people's perception of you. That's right. That's right. I saw um, a quick news clip this morning about uh, Taylor Swift. She uh, dropped. Um, uh, some music overnight, like 11:53 yeah, or something like that PM. And they talked about how she interacts with her fans, how she has these fan listening parties and she shows up and surprises them and, you know, brings cake and cookies and actually has conversations with them. That's part of her brand. Not everyone is cut out to do that. So I'm not saying make cake and cookies for your fans, but whatever's natural to you, is what you should be doing. But the number one thing is to establish the relationship. It's like I always used to say that um, most musicians would rather date their fans than marry them, which is problematic because we've all dated before. <laughs> um, generally, when we date someone, it's short term. Um, we have sex with them without really knowing who they are. Then we're disappointed. And we regret doing it in the first place. <laughs> and then we move on to the next guy or gal. Well, you don't want that. You don't want that experience to be what people experience when they listen to your music. You know that you don't want that that bait and switch where, you know, oh, the single sounds great. But then I get the album and I'm disappointed. Right. You're not going to build a fan base doing that. And that's what I mean by everything that you do is part of your brand. That's so true. And especially in this current era of the business we're in, where it mean it matters so much more to build deeper relationships with fewer fans than it did in the old right. days where you had quick relationships with millions of fans. Ryan, you just hit the nail on the head. That's exactly right. You've heard that old um, 
that'll added, you know, a thousand loyal fans or something like that. Mm -hmm. Well, that's very true. It is so true. Uh, build a relationship, marry these people. And when you marry someone, generally you get to know them, you spend time with them, you interact with them, you share with them, you ask them questions, you know, so it's not all about you. You know, I mean, I went on a blind date not too long ago and trust me, it was all about him. <laughs> Didn't ask me not one thing about me. Oh my goodness. You, yeah. But you want something out of me, obviously, obviously. <laughs> right. But you don't even, you you don't even show enough common courtesy to ask me something about myself. That's what musicians do. How could this That's guy not want to ask about you? You got so much what? stuff going on. What's he doing? Oh, I... <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Just a jerk. He was just I'm a jerk. telling you, just put that, let's just, let's put that guy on blast. What a, what a, what a mistake. <laughs> uh, I wish I could. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, this has been awesome. You were definitely the coolest college professor we've ever had on this show. Oh, good. Yeah. I'm so glad. Uh, you, I'm you were so definitely not the, the, you know, the stuffy, um, you know, elbow, uh, leather on the elbow pads kind of, uh, professor. This, I wish I could have had uh, someone like you when I was in school. Um, oh, thank and, you, Ryan. I really appreciate that. You know what? I just keep it real. I keep it real, real honest with my students because I want them to succeed. And I want every musician. I, I was talking to a group of students last night and I'll wrap this up. And I told them that I was so proud um, and so impressed with them because every musician can do something that I cannot do. I'm a very, I, I'm not bragging, I'm a very talented person. There are lots of things that I know how to do, but I cannot sing and I cannot play a musical instrument. And I am so enamored by those who can. So I got into the music business so that I can help these people share their music with the world and make a living with their music. Now, making a living with your music doesn't necessarily mean getting rich, right? Or being famous or being well-known. We know, it, it, just like you mentioned, there are thousands of musicians out there who are making a living and we will never know their names. Mm -hmm. We will never know their names. So, you know, once you define what your idea of success is, my job and those of us behind the scenes, our job is to make sure that you are able to make a living with your music. And for me, the only way to do that is just to be dead honest with you at all times. And even though some of it may sound, you know, a little harsh and a little tough love, it is still coming from a loving place. I want to see you succeed. Well, uh, honesty is uh, unfortunately in short supply in this business, so I'm glad it's in a significant supply with you. Uh, Thank this, you. This has been such a treat. I want to have you on again more often just because this is so much fun and you have so much great information and you're so honest. But oh, uh, to close yeah. us out, do you have any last tips to share with the indie artist listeners out there to help them move their careers forward? Yes. Uh, I think my advice would don't be thirsty. Um, it's a it's a term that I heard my uh, 15 year old niece use um, when when girls or guys are just a little too desperate. They're known as being thirsty. Well, I don't want indie musicians in particular to be so thirsty. Meaning, you know, I got to get a deal. You know, we got to put this album out. You know, we got to get this music. You know, I mean, it's relax a little is what I want to say. Because the thirstier you are, the more likely you'll you'll drink out of any, anything out of any cup. 
<laughs> She's the author of The Music Business is Corrupt, or maybe you just can't sing, How to Take Responsibility for Your Struggling Career. Professor Tanya Butler, thank you so much for joining us this week. Thank you, Ryan. It has been my pleasure anytime. We'll be right back on the Break the Business podcast. Friend of the show, John Ratzenberger here with Ryan Carella, author of Break the Business, Declaring Your Independence and Achieving True Success in the Music Industry, available on Amazon.com. Ryan, tell the folks a little about the book. Well, the book's about empowering Well, artists. that's fascinating, Ryan, but it's only a 15-second commercial. Thanks. Welcome back, everybody. Our thanks to the delightful Professor Tanya Butler for joining us in the previous segment. Please, please, please get a copy of her book, The Music Business is Corrupt, or maybe you just can't sing, How to Take Responsibility for Your Struggling Career. It's on Amazon, and hey, maybe I'll sneak a plug for myself in there. While you're getting her book on Amazon, maybe grab my book as well, Break the Business, Declaring Your Independence and Achieving True Success in the Music Industry, available on paperback, ebook, and audiobook. I think the two of those together could be a nice one-two punch. But if you're trying to figure out the order in which you should read them, um, read hers first because, hey, ladies first, and she's super accomplished because she is the uh, chair of the music business uh, management department at Berkeley. That's quite a title. And man, she's great. She was so great in the last segment. She really should have her own podcast. I can't be the only one who thinks that after listening to that last interview for no other reason that she has such a great voice for this. Her voice is so good. I mean, it's a great radio voice. Plus, of course, she's incredibly knowledgeable and really engaging to listen to. She'd be really good if she had her own music business podcast. Maybe I shouldn't be advising this because I think if she had her own podcast, it'd get a lot more listenership than mine. I'd probably lose some of my listeners to her because of how good she is. So forget everything I said, Tanya Butler. Don't get your own podcast. I don't need the competition. No, I'm kidding, of course. Uh, she really should get herself out there more and more because, man, such good advice, such a great person to talk to. I really adore her. Show your love, folks. Get a copy of The Music Business is Corrupt or Maybe You Just Can't Sing on Amazon. Um, before I let you guys go for this week, I know we usually do some pop culture here in the third segment. We kind of goof around a bit in this third segment. But I want to kind of do something a little different. And I assure you that this isn't going to become a regular thing that I do where I take the show in the direction I'm about to take it. But I just want to talk a little bit about something that's really bothering me. And since I don't have other forums to discuss these things, I don't have, this is my only podcast. And so if I don't talk about it here, I don't get a chance to talk about it. And I want to talk about this. And again, I promise you that after this week, I'm not going to make this a regular thing where I discuss these kind of topics. But I want to talk a little bit about what's happened this past few days, you know, it's been a crazy week in the United States, well, crazy few days, crazy weekend. And so I want to talk about one of those things right now. And I preface this by saying that I know we don't talk politics on this show. This is a music show. It's a music business show. We goof around, we have fun. And for many of you, perhaps this show is kind of a respite and a break from all the crap that's going on. Oh my God, the country's a big mess. Let's listen to the Break the Business podcast and goof around. And so 
if you see the show as that, I'm sorry for what's going to happen, but I do need to talk about what I'm about to talk about because this show is about the law. Above all else, it's about the law. And, we, and we're silly in the way that we talk about the law on this show. You know, we bring in the Sylvester Stallone, Armand Asante, you betrayed the law speech. But make no mistake, the people on this show, we care about the law. We respect the law. And we consider it our mission to educate you, the musician, about the law and policy so that you can be the best creators that you can be. We hold the law in high regard, and I have for my entire professional life and even my time as a student. And I want to talk about my experience as a law student for a second here. When I was in my third year in law school, I did what's known as a clinic. So in law school, you take a bunch of classes, you learn about different areas of law, civil procedure, torts, criminal law, I took a couple entertainment courses, intellectual property law, a lot of different things. But I also do what's called a clinic, which is like an internship for course credit. You go out and you actually get to practice the law under the supervision of real lawyers, of course, because, God, you don't want to put a law student anywhere near real law if there's not being appropriately supervised. But I did do one of these clinics in my third year. I clinicked at the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Eastern District of New York, just uh, outside of Manhattan, um, right on the other side of the Brooklyn Bridge in Brooklyn from Manhattan. It was actually pretty funny because I lived in the southern part of Manhattan while I was in law school in the financial district near the World Trade Center. And I used to walk to my clinic, you know, in the morning. Uh, I'd walk across the Brooklyn Bridge to get to the office, the Eastern District of New York U.S. Attorney's Office. And it was funny because... I was probably the only person who would walk on the bridge in the morning commuting from Manhattan to Brooklyn in the morning and then going from Brooklyn to Manhattan at night. I was Everybody else did it the other way, obviously, because you live in Brooklyn, you commute to Manhattan because it's obviously cheaper to live in one place. So I'd have a whole, as I'd be walking to my clinic in Brooklyn, I'd have a whole bunch of Brooklynites just walking the other way, staring at me like, what the hell's wrong with this guy? Why does he live in Manhattan and work in Brooklyn? But either way, I clinicked at the U.S. Attorney's Office, Eastern District of New York. It was a fabulous experience. I learned so much, and I wouldn't trade the experience for anything. And one of the things that I did as part of my clinic, I rotated around different departments. I was in the civil department. I did some stuff in, like, international terrorism and you know, bounced around, worked with a bunch of different fantastic AUSA, Assistant U.S. Attorneys, for those who are light on the lingo. And in one of my rotations... I worked with the assistant U.S. attorneys that were in charge of investigating potential White House pardons. In other words, when a, as most of you know, under the Constitution, the president of the United States is allowed to issue pardons for people who have been convicted of federal crimes. I mean, we all know about this now in light of recent events, but... In almost all cases, before a president ever issues a pardon on any person that's been convicted of a crime, they will refer the case to an assistant U.S. attorney who goes through an extensive investigation. People are interviewed. Records are analyzed. You do a deep, deep, deep dive into the facts of the case to see if 
we have an example of one of the few limited cases in which a person might actually be worthy of a presidential pardon. And then the, if that is one of those cases, the attorney then makes the recommendation to the White House and the White House then decides whether they want to issue the pardon. And I want to say it's rare because it is rare. In most, in the vast, 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 vast majority of situations in which we have reviewed pardons, when I reviewed pardons during my clinic, we would say, no, this person's not worthy of a pardon. Not because maybe they didn't deserve the pardon, or not because maybe they, they didn't have a meritorious case, but they weren't worthy of that very rare, extreme remedy of a presidential pardon. They weren't worthy of the extreme remedy of the president saying, I'm going to overturn the judicial process and all the procedures that go with it because I think this is a very special case. And that was very rare. And in fact, in my entire time of analyzing pardons for the Eastern District of New York, we never made a pardon recommendation. And we saw some good cases, but they weren't good enough for that extreme remedy. And I say that, and I talk about my experience to give you an idea of how insane it was on Friday for the president of the United States to give a pardon to Sheriff Joe Arpaio. Pardons are an extreme remedy to be exercised only in the most egregious miscarriages of justice. You don't just give one on a whim to Joe Arpaio because he's an early political supporter of yours and because you as the president of the United States like the way he treated immigrants and prisoners. To give you some background, pardons, they're meant to be a check on judicial power. They're only supposed to be used in those extremely rare circumstances where the judicial process has failed. It's checks and balances. This is, this is seventh grade civics. This check on the judicial power is only supposed to be used by the president when somebody is super railroaded by the justice system or has been unjustly convicted or something like that. They're supposed to be used as an executive check on failures in the judicial process. There needs to be a failure in the judicial process. But in this case, with Joe Arpaio, it was used in a case where the judicial process worked perfectly fine. There were no errors in the process. A federal court issued an order to Joe Arpaio to stop racial profiling, to stop hurting people. He willfully ignored that order. He was correctly punished. Period. There was no great miscarriage of justice that happened in this case that warranted the extreme remedy of a presidential pardon. The remedy that we recommended so rarely in that department at the U.S. Attorney's Office. The pardon here is the miscarriage of justice. This is beyond the pale. There were no procedural defects in Arpaio's case. There were no constitutional violations. There was no unjust law that was applied to somebody. There was no railroading. And there was no extensive investigation as to the worthiness of this pardon, as is done in other pardon cases. That process wasn't followed. Everything about this was wrong. And in the end, if you didn't listen to... If, if none of that above ranting made much sense to you, because I got sort of maybe a little bit into the weeds as to, you know, the meaning of the Constitution, justice and everything. If you remember one thing, remember this. Presidential pardons are meant to protect innocent people who are hurt by the justice system. 
It is they are not meant to protect those in the justice system who hurt innocent people. I'll say it again. Presidential pardons are meant to protect innocent people who are hurt by the justice system. They are not meant to protect those in the justice system who hurt innocent people. Pardons are meant to safeguard the judicial process, not undermine it. As I said before, I don't enjoy talking about this stuff. I really don't want to talk about politics on this show. I rarely talk politics in my public life. Look at my Facebook profile. Look at my Twitter profile. I don't talk about this stuff. And even as I say that, frankly, I feel very guilty not talking about this stuff. I understand that I don't want to talk politics on this show because this show isn't a political show and you're looking for a respite. And maybe I have some listeners who are supporters of the president and his actions. And, you know, I don't want to be divisive, I guess, but at the same time, it's getting ridiculous because I look at my Twitter profile and it's ridiculous that I am just posting pictures of my dog doing something adorable. And all around me, there are tweets about people talking about the country falling apart. But that's what happens when you become the person who doesn't make political statements. But I feel very guilty about this. Because being able to say that I don't talk politics is a luxury that others in this country don't have. I am fully cognizant of the fact that I am a straight, white, cisgendered, upper middle class male. The political process doesn't affect me every day, so I have the luxury of saying that I don't talk politics. Because for me, politics is the act of looking on the, being on the outside looking in. The political process doesn't affect my daily life. As troubling as the Donald Trump presidency has been, my daily life hasn't changed. You know, my, my life is exactly the same when Obama was in office as it is when Trump is in office. And that's a luxury and that's privilege. And so I have the luxury of saying I don't talk politics and that stinks because... We can't stay silent anymore because stuff like this is wrong. And frankly, talking about a president misusing the pardon power to reward one of his political supporters who hurt people, this is beyond politics. This is about the law. And even if I didn't talk politics, I should be talking about the law. I'm a lawyer. I swore an oath, as every lawyer did, to protect the law and to protect the legal processes that make our system work, because what happened on Friday undermines that law, undermines those processes. It is so damn wrong. And we all need to speak out. I'll see you next week.